Hey, it's Turkey Week, March 11 through 17. Free shipping on all orders at First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store, too. You can pick up all the First Light gear that I wear in the Turkey Woods, plus so much more, including Meat Eater by Phelps Turkey Calls, which are straight up killers, and Vortex Red Dots at 20% off. We're going to get you set up for the turkey season. So set up, in fact, that all you have to do is focus on that tom. So head on over to TheMeatEater.com, March 11 through 17 for Turkey Week. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 21. Today in the show, we're joined by Terry Drury of Drury Outdoors. With the opener of deer season only days away, we're talking about early season hunting strategies. Terry lays down some awesome advice in this show, so get ready to take notes and enjoy. Now before we get started today, I want to offer a quick apology. In order to join us for the interview, Terry had to call in from his cell phone out near one of his hunting properties. And for that reason, his service wasn't terribly strong, and it resulted in a few audio issues. I want to apologize for that in advance, but I think you'll find that the content of this discussion is well worth the occasional audio hiccup. Thanks for your understanding. And now, let's get right into it. All right, welcome to the Wire to Hunt podcast. We've got a really great show on tap for you today, as joining me and Dan is a very special guest, Terry Drury of Drury Outdoors. Welcome to the show, Terry. Hey, guys. How we doing? I'm doing I'm doing great. How about you, Dan, over there? I'm doing pretty good. I'm not at work. Hey, I know that's always a good thing for you. Terry, we, we really appreciate you joining us today. This is going to be a pretty, a pretty neat conversation, I think. Absolutely. I'm always fired up for a uh, little early season deer hunting, and then we've got uh, you know food plots and a whole just a wide array of things we can talk about. Awesome. Yeah, we, we are equally psyched up about the season coming up here shortly, so we're definitely going to have to dive into the, some, some of those things. But first, while I don't think I need to give too much of an introduction for you, as you know, most of our audience is full of hardcore whitetail addicts who are very familiar with Drury Outdoors and the TV shows and DVDs you produce. But for those that might not be as familiar, could you give us a brief recap of you know how you, Mark, maybe got started with Drury Outdoors and how things maybe got to where they are today? Well, I'd be glad to. We uh, we started out back in 1988, uh, and both of us loved to hunt prior to that. We grew up in in a rural area, you know, and hunted our grandparents' farms, uh, did a lot of rabbit and squirrel hunting back in the day when we were youngsters and had uh, beagles. We were always rabbit hunting on our grandparents' farm and trying to, trying to put a little food on the table back then, did a lot of squirrel hunting and so on and so forth. And then it just kind of evolved into uh, into the deer and turkey thing, which Mark started competitively turkey calling uh, way back in the day and was somewhat traveling a circuit, so to speak, going from state to state, trying to win these uh, competitions, you know. And and uh, with his turkey calling abilities, we, uh, we traveled to several different states doing a little bit of turkey hunting. And then at that time, there weren't a lot of television or video producers and uh, for the most part, we thought we would give it a try. There was a couple of them out there. We thought that uh, we thought we could do it. 
so we went together and bought a camera back in the uh, late 80s there and went to the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas. And in those mountains, we filmed our first uh, turkey hunt together. And then, as they say, you know, the rest is history because we really never put the cameras down once we started filming the first hunt. And uh, from turkey, we evolved into the deer hunting because the numbers were much greater there. There were so many more deer hunters than there were turkey hunters. And Mark is extremely passionate about turkeys and turkey hunting, and I was a little more passionate about deer and deer hunting. So the evolution was just a natural fit for us. Uh, but we kind of always made the deer our star. It never was really about us. It was always about the whitetail and trying to match wits with a whitetail and uh, play that chess match on a daily basis and really learn from our mistakes. We, we were self-taught, both of us, and uh, made plenty of mistakes and still making those mistakes. But we were always students of the game as well, and we were always willing to try and learn something. So uh, the evolution was really more about the animal than it was about us. And we involved, you know, quite a few subcontractors and team members and partners and, and uh, other guys that loved to hunt. And that's kind of where we uh, landed here today. We just evolved as a team. And it's still more about the whitetail, and it's all about learning, uh, you know, these creatures. They, they're creatures of habit, much like us but they always seem to win in the end. So matching wits with one is like the ultimate chess match. Yeah, that's, that's the truth. And a couple of things you mentioned there are really what I love about, you know, the DVDs and TV shows you guys produce. You're really producing some of the best content out there for the hardcore whitetail hunter that, that I've seen. I just have really enjoyed the fact that you do show it all, um, and it's relatable. I mean, you guys have had some bad shots on deer. You've had some misses. You've had some miscues. And... I love the fact that you're not afraid to show that, and I'm sure you take some flack on occasion, you know, just like we have on different things we put out there, but but that realism is so important, and I think uh, it's great to see that from someone, especially as experienced and, and entrenched in the industry as you guys, that you're still putting out those mistakes along the way. Well, ironically enough, they, they only show mine. They never show any marks. <laughs> <laughs> he, he seems to have total edit control when it comes to the final the final cutting room floor where he somehow finagles his way in there and makes sure that his never gets shown. So I usually have to wear that, that, uh, that dunce hat for quite a few days, and uh, he never has to wear it for whatever reason. <laughs> well, that explains a lot of things that I've seen. <laughs> yeah, it does explain a lot. And, uh, he, you know, he always seems like he's the, the epitome of, of a target archer, you know, one of the finest, and he is. When it comes down to the uh, to the really down to the wire and making that shot, Mark's one of the best. And I, I, I tell you, over the years, you could literally, you know, show every one of his kills, and his kill zone is pretty doggone small. His grouping is always pretty tight. He's got ice water running through his veins whenever a big whitetail's in on him. But uh, he's always done such a good job. But with that being said, he's had his share of misses. No one's ever seen them. <laughs> I do remember one recently where he uh... – a less than ideal shot on a pretty nice Missouri buck, I think it was, and he still was able to get that kill. So I guess he's not 100% perfect on film, but <laughs> that's pretty funny. And that well, well, Jumping in front of a camera, and I, I guess this is something that people don't realize, it's not easy. And we've been doing it for so long, it's like it really doesn't bother us anymore. But for the very first time or the first you know, a couple of years, if you're in front of a camera, it's like having a, an audience or somebody behind you there, and it puts an added dimension that you, a little bit added pressure that you normally aren't accustomed to doing when you're standing in your driveway and you're shooting at your, your block target or whatever it may be, or Glendale, 
you don't feel that pressure, but you get in front of a camera, it's a little bit different because you know, you know, whatever you do is going to be uh, criticized and critiqued by everyone out there watching. So it's a little added pressure, but he's, he's really one of the best for putting a big whitetail down on the ground. Yeah. And like you said, it really does open you up to criticism that both Dan and I both film our hunts too and put them out there. And it's, it's interesting because everybody makes mistakes, but it seems like if you, if you put your mistake out there, people are pretty quick to jump on it, which is unfortunate, but probably a conversation for another day. That, yeah, uh, that, long one. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely is. But, but all that said, um, you know, with it being late August here and the hunting seasons are about to open in a matter of days or weeks for most people across the country, um, like I mentioned earlier, really wanted to focus most of our conversation on early season hunting strategies. But before that, Terry, we always like to start our show with a laugh, courtesy of a bit of a curveball question from my co-host, Dan. So, Dan, what have you got today for Terry? Well, we are we're making history today, okay? This is the first ever speed round, okay? So, Uh-oh. Terry, all you need to do, I'm going to give you two options. You, you pick one, okay? And this is basically just a pass-fail test. Um, <laughs> and to tell you, you know, to show what kind of guy you really are, it has nothing to do with whitetails. Uh, myself and a team of scientists put these questions together. And uh, I'll tell you what, let's just get into it, and I think you'll, I think you'll get where we're going. All right, I'm I'm game. Okay, here we go. Classic rock or country? Country. Sandwich or cup of soup? Sandwich. Fruits or vegetables? Fruits. Oh, good call. That's a good one. Rollerblades or bicycle? Bicycle. Mustache or full beard? Ooh. Eh, full beard. Okay. Old school or new school? I'm old school through and through, buddy. All right. (laughs) Beer or whiskey? Beer. Checkers or chess? Chess. All right. How many pairs of socks do you own? (laughs) Well, counting all the new Under Armour socks that we just got, I'd say dozens and dozens of pairs. Okay. All right. I'm going to say over 50. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Long time ago, my grandpa said, "You can really judge a man by his socks." I don't have a clue what that means, but <laughs> that he said it. You, I'll just, long story short, you passed the test. Cool. <laughs> I'd, uh... What did I win, Bob? <laughs> a repeat yeah. visit on this show. <laughs> did I win a new car, Dan? I tell you what, if you like Honda Civics from about 1995. Can I squeeze a big deer in the back of that puppy? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> well, then I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. That was, those were pretty easy. I was afraid they were going to get off color a little bit, but you stayed pretty clean with it. Yeah, well, we got we got a younger audience as well, so we got to, you know, maybe another time. We'll get, we'll get deeper, sure. if you know I, what I mean. I liked them. They were good. <laughs> well, well, well done, Dan. I enjoyed the speed round. We'll, um, we'll have to bring that up bring that out again sometime for someone else too but with our uh, with our little curveball out of the way and I figured you'd like that Terry given I think you and Mark are pretty pretty good baseball fans um, now I'd want to focus on whitetails and as I mentioned early season hunting strategy so Terry to kick things off 
I'd love first to hear a little bit about, you know, what's leading up to the early season. And that's what we're doing right now in these final weeks of summer. Can you share with us a little bit about, you know, what your final preparations are leading up to the season opener? Absolutely. It's, it's probably our most frantic time of the year. And I say that, you know, because we start pushing here pretty hard. And we have been for the last several weeks trying to make sure that all of our food plots are planted, making sure that all of the box blinds are clean and they're free of all the wasps, making sure, and snakes and every other critter that wants to make a home there. Then all of our tree stands, we go around and we check all of our straps, making sure that all the ratchets are good, making sure the squirrels didn't cut through anything or or gnaw through something. We make sure that all of our, our shooting lanes are trimmed. We make sure that the camera guy and the hunter can be on the same page because a lot of times the, you know, the hunter's got a view and he can make the shot, but the camera guy can't get on him. So there's some additional trimming that goes on there in a lot of these trees. And if you trim them one year, they come back twice as bushy the next year. So it's a constant, uh, it's really a constant, you know, job where you got to go in there and maintain it. Uh, but really right now I'm in desperation mode checking uh, Reconics cameras and looking at pictures on a nightly basis. I just did that today. I'm sitting here alongside the road because I'm in my farm in northern Missouri and I have terrible cell service here, so I had to go to a spot where I got coverage. But I made, uh, I don't know how many cameras today, probably 30. Visited 30 cameras, changed all the flashcards, haven't looked at any of the pictures. Uh, The the first round, and I leave my cameras out year-round because I want to try and see exactly you know, when they shed their antlers, what kind of shape the herd looks like. Uh, I want to check the buck-to-doe ratio and the numbers and where they're bedding, how much food is available, uh, anybody that might be in the farm that's not supposed to be there. So they're kind of a security uh, blanket as well. But yeah. that first round, you go through and you start changing batteries, and, you and you know, it may be full of ants. There might be spider webs in front of them, older lens. And uh, so there's, there's quite a bit of maintenance there that goes on with the cameras. But then, as I, as I go through round two, round three, round four, and so on, you make sure that there's nothing in the way. I, I take a weed eater, and uh, I literally will go all the way down to bare dirt over some of the cameras where, where I know it's going to be a community scrape. Uh, historically, it's one of our, our better spots. So I go ahead and make it easy for that buck to go in there and see where that, you know, that kind of that bare spot is. Because it's so often, you'll see the weeds are four foot tall, and uh, they wouldn't hit that spot. So we try and direct these deer and get our movement in front of the camera. So there's just a regimen of things that we go through here in preparation for the season because the last thing you want to do is be out there doing all this stuff and be trying trying to hunt too because we, we don't want to do any more disturbance uh, than we absolutely just have to once the season gets here. So our, our season opens September the 15th. So uh, I'm going to say by August 31st here, over the next couple of days, we're just buttoning up, finishing the last few go-to items and making sure that everything is ready to go. And then, and then the farm will rest for a couple of weeks here. We won't go inside. And uh, we're going to turn it on come September 15th. We're going to start whacking and stacking a few does. And I like to do that on the perimeters. I try to keep the center of the farm uh, somewhat intrusion-free and I'll start my doe harvest on the outside. And, and I'm really looking for daylight walkers when it comes to bucks or shooters. We got hit heavily in the last. We get hit with EHD heavily in the last couple of years. So now trying to find a shooter is is really. So uh, I've been trying to find daylight. We'll, we'll kind of 
hone in on those if, we, if and when we find them. And if we don't find a target deer or a target animal, then we'll, we'll work on the, uh, the does and try and get a buck to doe ratio in check. Our, mine is way, way out of, out of shelter. So speaking of uh, those shooter bucks, Terry, what's your, how is your inventory or hit list looking right now after you've been checking those trail cameras so far this summer? Not good. Uh, last year, I was desperately trying to find a, a four-and-a-half-year-old deer, and I had a couple on the farm. But, uh, you know, when you target one or two, it's just nearly impossible to get them in front of a tree stand. And, and this year, it's the same way. Years ago, I would target five-and-a-half-year-old deer with, an, with a bow and six, seven, and eight with a gun. But uh, because of the size of my farm and, and, you know, the neighbors and all that other stuff, I, I wasn't able to sustain that. I wasn't able to do it. So now I drop back to four-and-a-half-year-old deer, and some of them, if, they, if I think they're going to blow into something, I'll let them go. If I don't think they're going to blow into something, if it's an eight-point and he's always going to be an eight-point, he might kick a nine out or, or another point, but uh, he's 135 or 140-inch eight, I don't think he's going to do any better. I'll go ahead and harvest that particular animal. But I really don't have but maybe three shooters that I'm looking at right now, and the, and the highest scoring one is probably in the mid-50s. But that's not uncommon right now because there's so many standing crop fields around me, a lot of soybeans and a lot of standing corn. So my farm usually changes once the, uh, the adjacent landowners get their, get their crops out. Then I start seeing some new bucks pop up. Hey, it's Turkey Week, March 11 through 17. Free shipping on all orders at First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store, too. You can pick up all the First Light gear that I wear in the turkey woods, plus so much more, including Meat Eater by Phelps Turkey Calls, which are straight-up killers, and Vortex Red Dots at 20% off. We're going to get you set up for the turkey season. So set up, in fact, that all you have to do is focus on that tom. So head on over to TheMeatEater.com, March 11 through 17 for Turkey Week. Okay, that makes sense. Now, uh, this, pr- this brings to mind a question that uh, a couple of our, our readers and listeners had posted on our Facebook page when, they mentioned, when I mentioned that you were going to be on the show, and several people had asked uh, about your perspective on how the recovery from EHD has been in your neck of the woods. Uh, what does that look like at this point? Do you feel like you're coming out of it, or is it still impacting your herd? Well, it's funny that you ask that because I, I could smell what I thought were two dead deer today uh, in different locations, and, and I think that it's, it's still here. I don't think we've remedied it uh, 100%. I think we're a long time getting back to where we were. Mark and I knew that we saw the peak of the whitetail hunting here, I'm going to say, in maybe 10, 20, 2009 and 2010. Okay. And then it has really been a decline ever since then. Not this past fall, but the previous fall is when I noticed it the worst. You know, when, when I would sit on a, on a huge food plot or a destination feed field, it was not uncommon to see 12 to 14 bucks a sitting. Well, a couple of years ago, two falls ago, I noticed that my, my buck count was down. Well, I'd be lucky to see five or six bucks or maybe seven bucks. And it was literally cut in half. And that's where we have stayed and that's where it's remained. And even on my cameras, the, the buck numbers are way, way down, and I just don't see it recovering very, very quickly. I think this could be 10, 15, 20 years in some areas. There were areas in Illinois. We had a farm over there leased last year where it was just absolutely void of deer. It was one of the best-looking pieces I've ever set foot on, and it was the worst piece I've ever hunted on. It just, there, they were all dead. So when that happened, 
it takes a long time to get back to where we were, and that's provided that their immune system they can they can beat the uh, the disease. So until the midge goes away, which I don't think it ever goes away, or their immune system gets to a level where they can fight it off, uh, that's that's where we're at. Now there are ways of trying to that. Uh, we've got a supplemental feeding program from a company called Analogics that's targeting uh, some of the supplements that they need within their system. It would be like a, a man over 50 taking, you know, men's one a day, you know, where he need, he's got certain needs that, that he goes through with iron and all these other things. Well, that's kind of what they've done with their supplement. And uh, thus far, you know, we don't have any results because we just started – started this supplemental program uh oh i'm gonna say in march of this this past march so we're hoping that we'll be able to curtail it and it's really about building a healthier herd uh but they you know they look at the copper they look at selenium uh manganese iron all of these different minerals that you see throughout the country and it varies from state to state they've done a lot of uh scientific you know, investigation from state to state and tried to figure out what the best solution is. And it varies as far as their mixtures are concerned as well. But we've been doing a supplemental feeding program that we're hoping to uh, kind of help build a healthier herd. Good. That's good. Um, now, as far as, you know, you talk to some people, they don't hunt early season. They wait for the rut. They wait for it to get good. Um, so there's, you ask some people, it's a negative thing hunting early season. You ask some people, it's a you know, they love hunting the early season. Um, what do you think are a couple benefits of hunting early season? Well, you know, I, I particularly like hunting early season. It's the most trying of times because you sit there and the mosquitoes and the bugs and all these little black flies and everything are trying to bite you and stick you and eat you and all that stuff. And the woods are full of ticks and chiggers and everything. So it's, it's kind of a, a challenge to do that time of year. But that's when I work on my shooting skills, and I, I really am aggressive when it comes to doe harvest. But, and I realize not every area has got a, a buck to doe ratio like ours. But so many of our bucks got taken out with EHD, and it didn't affect the does quite as heavily. So my numbers are way out of whack, and, and the deer density is extremely high in this particular area. So I really, really try to hone in on, on, and sharpen those, those archery skills. And uh, I do that by harvesting does. And, you know, we do a, we take care of a lot of the meat and make sure that it goes to share the harvest program. Some of it we'll go ahead and, and take to a processor and get the freezers filled up right away. But we're very, very assertive and very aggressive on that early season with, that, with the early season doe harvest. With that being said, it's one of the best times in the, of the year if you've got a daylight walker and he's coming by a camera on a pretty regular basis. By golly, then a guy needs to be aggressive and jump in on him and try and harvest him those first two or three days of the season because it's a really, really short window. And if you've got a daylight walker and you know he's bedded very, very close, you know, you got to slip in there and not make any noise, make sure the wind's correct, make sure you got the right access, and on and on and on. But uh, it is a perfect time of the year to harvest a big, mature deer. So that brings up another question then, Terry. Um, if you do have that situation um, where you find a day walk, a day walker on camera, how do you go about setting that straight? You mentioned a couple of the factors there. I imagine wind, weather, whatever, et cetera. But 
how do you go about planning that first one, two, three hunts? Are you going in there just saying, okay, this is the camera I've got. I'm going to hunt the stand closest to that, tra- that trail camera where I've got pictures of him when the conditions are right? Or do you do you put together a longer strategy? Okay, over the course of the three days, I'm going to move closer with observation stands or anything like that. You know, What does that plan look like once you know you have a daylight walker? Well, I, I like what you just said there. That's a really good point, and that's one of the ways to do it is to observe uh, a night or two first and, and kind of watch where he's coming out. And then typically that time of year when they get on to either a biologic field or a, let's say a green soybean field, they don't move very far. Once they get into the middle of that thing, they just stand there and eat like an old cow and they just don't go very far. And then they turn and then they go back to their bed. So one of the things that you have to remember, if you're getting daylight photos, he's bedded very, very close to that particular spot. They're not walking you know, a half a mile to get there and, and pop out before dark. That, they, they're bedded right off the food typically that time of year when it's when it's extremely warm and they know they've got a green food source very, very close. If you're getting pictures at 435, 536, or even 7, uh, the chances are he's bedded right there close. So I would probably observe, observe at least one or two nights and try and figure out exactly where he's popping up and then how far out into the field he's going. But then I'd mash in on him pretty quick because he's not going to do it very long. And then once the mass crop starts falling, if you've got an acorn crop, he may disappear completely for another month or two and you may not see him again. So that's the other reason I pile in on him pretty heavy because the acorns haven't hit the ground yet. So if you've got a green food source and, and we've got a lot of biologic planted right now, we've got some standing soybeans as well, but we've got something that we find is extremely palatable this time of year. And that's biologic radishes, man. They just tear them up. <laughs> and uh, we've had really, really good luck with them. So we'll sit over those, maybe watch them an evening or two if we got a, a shooter that's coming out. And then we'll pile in on him pretty close. And we'll get we'll get to that right stand, the closest stand, but we're going to make sure the wind's right. We're going to make sure that we have the right wind speed. Wind velocity is just as important as wind direction. If you've got a north wind at 2 to 3 mile an hour, or you have a north wind at 8 to 10 mile an hour, huge difference, absolutely huge difference. A small, those light, lighter winds are usually variable. The, the stiffer winds are usually a little more consistent. But if you've got a light wind that's variable and you know he's bedded close, pretty good chance you'll bump him out of his bed, or he may not show up at all. He may just lay there and not move. So you have to be cognizant of the wind speed along with that wind direction. Uh, inter- interesting point you bring up there, Terry. Is there a, a wind speed that's getting too high? It sounds like there's that really low speed is dangerous. Middle ground, maybe 8 to 10 is ideal because you'll get consistent, though. Is there a point where it becomes too much? Well, the herd kind of dictates that. And, and if you get a wind that's over 30 mile an hour, 35, and even 25 mile an hour wind, the deer react real skittish. And you, you can see that in their reaction. But I will tell you this, I've, and it's probably not wise, but I have hunted in a lot higher winds. As a matter of fact, one of the only deer I saw one evening was a shooter, a shooter and uh, it was, I think the wind was gusting about 50 miles an hour, and we were strapped in there as tight as we could get, but ended up killing the animal, and he was the only deer we saw that evening. So it's not uncommon for a mature deer to move when nothing else moves. And it just so happened the wind was high enough where they none moved, but he did. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. You, you don't want to sacrifice uh, safety 
uh, by all means, you got to make sure that your safety harness is attached. And a lot of times when it's windy like that, we'll put two on. I'll put two harnesses or two safety belts on just for, for safekeeping. We'll make sure that we're in a pretty doggone uh, durable tree, not a small trunk one, one that's, that you know can withstand the, the 30 and 40 mile an hour wind speeds. But uh, it just doesn't get too windy for me, I, I will be honest. So we don't, we don't mind sitting in some windy weather as long as we're strapped in tight and we know it's safe. Good deal. Good deal. Now, um, when it comes to early season hunting, are you guys hunting uh, mornings at all? Or if not, when do you guys start hunting mornings? Good question. No, we are not hunting mornings. And a lot of that is because our cam- we let our cameras there again dictate the times that we hunt. But if you really watch and study photos, and we do, Mark and I collectively take about a million pictures a year and I'm probably sitting on maybe 170 to 180,000 that I've looked at already this year. But if you watch those times, typically those big mature deer are back in their beds, or you'll see the photos at 4.30, 4.45, 5 a.m. But, buddy, come daylight, you just don't see many pictures of them. So rather than bump them out of, it, out of an area, if we know he's coming out in the evening, because it's not uncommon to see them in a, in a big bottom field where it's a little bit cooler or something or a cool area, a shady area. You'll see them pop out in the evening. But what we don't want to do is run them or bump them out of their bed for an evening hunt. So we put all of our uh, marbles in, in a basket for evenings, and we just don't try not to do any intrusion and try not to bump them out of their beds in the morning because we feel as though we do more harm than good. Now, as the season progresses and we get through the month of October, in November, that's when we start hunting mornings. And uh, because the deer go through a little bit of a change as well, the last 10 days of October, and I'm specifically talking about the Midwest here. I know it varies when you get into the Northeast and the, and the Southeast and the Northwest. Mm-hmm. All of that kind of changes a little bit. But here in the Midwest, and I'm talking Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, Kansas, uh, we like to spend the last 10 days in October in the afternoons and evenings the first 10 days of November in the morning, and then the second 10 days in November, typically we go, we'll hunt all day. That midday uh, movement just gets so much better in that second uh, period of during November, the second 10 through the 20th. Hey, Terry. Are you there? Hey, we got you. Sounds like you dropped off for just a second there. We're good okay. to go. Last thing we heard you say is that uh, that second part of November is when they really start moving all day. Yes, that we again. I'm going to reiterate: the first ten days in November is is definitely mornings here in the Midwest, and then the tenth through the twentieth, the second ten day period, is typically midday stuff. That's when those bucks uh, guns have started cracking, and all of a sudden they start moving during those midday hours in lieu of that early morning. But those first ten days, we like to try and catch them going back to bed. You know, they've been out roaming all night looking for those estrus does or the first available estrus does that have popped. And you'll see that they're a little bit later getting back in their beds in that first 10 days of November. So that's where we try and head them off and intercept uh, those bedrooms. Now, you mentioned when, when talking about the timing of when these deer are starting to move during daylight, you mentioned how you're looking at your cameras to verify that. Can you elaborate a little bit on how specifically you're using these cameras during that first part of the year? Like, where are these all on food sources the, those first few weeks of the season, or are you putting them on, like you mentioned, scrapes? Or where, are the, where are these trail cameras at that time? 
great question, and I and I will I'll add a line here that that the Reconyx cameras, and and really the inception of trail cameras in general has changed or has been the biggest change that we've seen in whitetail hunting in the most recent of years. It's a, it's a paradigm shift because it gives you a tool that, you know, hunters just didn't have before. We, we worked on the wildlife eye years ago where we had a, uh, a camera with a link connection and we were actually laying down mini DV footage. It was a lot of video footage and, and we were just mesmerized by this stuff. Well, with the inception of these cameras now, they're so much easier to set up and they're easier to maintain and easier to look at. We've kind of switched everything over to the Reconyx cameras and, and things have come full circle. Now everybody's going with the video. But with that being said, it's the single most important thing that we have as far as a beneficial tool in trying to hunt whitetail. And early season, you know, we may have had them on some of these supplemental feeders that I was talking about. Uh, you know, where we're using the Analogics 365 product and you'll keep your feeder or keep your cameras on the feeder so that you can watch and see the actual development, the antler development, what bucks have returned, what bucks have fell off and you can't find. Uh, but as the season gets closer and we take, we pick up all of our feeders, we don't want them out there, you know, because it's not legal, number one, to hunt over a feeder in, uh, in Missouri, Illinois, there's several states where it's not legal, Iowa. Uh, so we pick up all the feeders and bring them back in, and then I shift and move all the cameras and put them all on scrapes. And a lot of them are in and around those food plots that we have. We've got biologic maximum, biologic winter bulbs and sugar beets, biologic radishes. So these scrapes are in and around those fields where they're going to be, uh, you know, coming to a green food source here real soon. And I'm saying probably anywhere through that month of October when they really start hitting the green food source and they'll start hitting those scrapes, uh, and it just continues to develop and get a little more intense as the season progresses. But we try to stay ahead of that rut, and we move our cameras uh, fairly early. Again, uh, and I'll reiterate this, I went in and took a weed eater, and I weed eat an area because some of the weeds were three and four foot tall, and you number one, you don't want your camera to be clicking off pictures. So, And then number two, you want to have that available bare spot so a whitetail can see it, and he's going to walk over to it once he drops his velvet. That, that rubbing and scraping starts right away. And uh, we just want to have those, those scrapes available for him to go to. Make it easy as you can for him. They're rather lazy. Now, is there a particular date that you would say maybe in October that's kind of like a light switch where the deer start finding a little bit more interest in the does? They're up on their feet a little bit more. Not necessarily rutting activity yet, but they're, they're kind of getting that interest. Yeah, I, I think here in the Midwest, that period from, which Halloween's always been a good one, but anywhere from the 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th of October, it really starts to crank it up. And it's so weather dependent. You know, whitetails are not too indifferent from humans. They're going to lay there until the temperature feels right. You know, and if it's still 85 degrees at the end of October, they're obviously not going to be walking onto that green food source during daylight hours they're going to wait till it cools down it might be 11 and 11 30 at night but if you've got a nice little cool front and you're hitting some highs in the mid 40s or maybe in the 50s uh at that tail end of october or we really have had great luck 27 28 29th to 30th and then all the way up through halloween it's just magical how that light switch turns on that that period I, I love keying in on those cold fronts too at that time of year. It just, it changes everything. Like you said, now related to that, 
um, when it comes to fronts moving in and stuff, something I've heard you talk a lot about on your videos or TV show is the impact of barometric pressure. And this is something that I think a lot of people hear about but don't really clearly understand how that influences deer movement or impacts deer. So I would love to hear if you could give us maybe a a 101 on how you look at pressure and changing pressure and how that impacts how you hunt and how deer move. God, I love your questions. You guys are on it now. <laughs> the, uh, the barometer isn't the only thing. It's, it's an indicator. And Mark and I use it as an indicator because typically a falling barometer will be associated with a low-pressure system that, that may be coming in. A low-pressure system is usually uh, going to be uh, starting a counterclockwise rotation when it comes to the air air movement. So a low is usually associated with counterclockwise rotation. A rising barometer is typically when a front has passed through and you're going to see a high-pressure system. A high-pressure system is, is typically associated with clockwise rotation. So uh, we watch those barometers because normally they're going to be indicative to those fronts prior to the front getting here or after the front has cleared out. But a, 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 we hunt them both. We hunt lows and we hunt highs. We hunt falling barometers and we hunt rising barometers. Typically, the movement is better with a rising barometer on a high-pressure system after a low has pushed through. Not saying that the movement isn't good ahead of that low, but it's usually pretty good when that high ushers in cool temperatures. You've got a really high sky. You've got clockwise rotation, uh, a rising barometer, and nearly all the deer get up on their feet and move. A low-pressure system, you'll see it will be rather random, but you may see the biggest deer in the woods might move ahead of that low, knowing there's something coming. He may, uh, he may just move from one side of the ridge to the other. He might go grab a bite and then go lay down. But a low-pressure system is not the worst time to hunt, but you may not see the numbers of deer that you would see on a high-pressure system after the low has cleared out. But we use the, the barometer as an indicator, uh, and we just have had better luck on highs with a rising barometer than we have with lows and a falling barometer. I'm gonna to have to go back and re-listen to this and take notes to make sure I really. <laughs> I want to make sure I. I want to make sure I process this because this is good stuff. But uh, and I'm sorry if I go too quick, but that's no, that the good. stuff. What can I talk about on a daily basis? And and again, I, I said it earlier on. We're students of the game, and we never stop learning. And we're always it's that chess match. When you ask checkers a chess. We love a good chess match. Well, if you want to get in a good chess match, try and tackle a big whitetail that's six or seven years old and then try and figure him out. I mean, you literally seem dumber and dumber by the day uh, because they always seem to win. So when you do beat one at his own game, it's a big deal. And particularly whenever you've got a, a camera over your shoulder, it's, it's just not, it's not easy to do. Last year, I hunted 58 days before I killed my first one. It's just, it's like the impossible. It's like winning the lottery. When you kill one with a bow uh, over your shoulder, with a camera over your shoulder, it really is a, a tough, tough deal. So Mark and I study this stuff on a daily basis, and we try to, to process as much information as we possibly can. And then we like to share it with people and hope that it helps somebody else. That's our big thing. We've learned it the hard way, and we've made all the mistakes. And we just want to try and help somebody else learn to, to kill a big deer or maybe not make the mistakes that we made growing up. Yeah, it's it's that chess match I think that keeps us coming back, you know, season after season, right? It's just uh, an incredible challenge, but like you said, when it actually all comes together, holy smokes, that is an incredible feeling and accomplishment, that's for sure. Now, tied into the same 
deal here. We met, we talked about how the barometer and rising or falling pressure impacts deer. Another factor that people are constantly hypothesizing about is the moon, how the moon phase affects deer movement, how, you know, the rising and setting moon times affects deer movement. What are your thoughts on how the moon influences deer? And then can you give us a primer on, you know, what, what's the right moon phase in your opinion? Or what's the, you know, I've mentioned, I've heard about when you mentioned there's a, a rising, an early rising moon, you want to be hitting the food sources early. I'd love to hear more about you, your thoughts on the moon. Hey, it's Turkey Week, March 11 through 17. Free shipping on all orders at First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store, too. You can pick up all the First Light gear that I wear in the Turkey Woods, plus so much more, including. Meat Eater by Phelps Turkey Calls, which are straight up killers, and Vortex Red Dots at 20% off. We're going to get you set up for the turkey season. So set up, in fact, that all you have to do is focus on that Tom. So head on over to TheMeatEater.com, March 11 through 17 for Turkey Week. Well, and, and that's why this is a chess match, because uh, number one, weather is first and foremost. Number two is that moon phase. And, and all, of these, all of these triggers matter. So when you talk about a chess match, because when you're looking at a chess board, you have to think about the bishop, you have to think about the rook, you have to think about the pawns, you've got to think about the king, the queen, and so on and so forth, and go right on down the line. With whitetail hunting, you have to think about every single parameter and then try and stack the odds in your favor. And that's really all you're doing is stacking the odds. You try to... You try to, to go in there with everything stacked in your favor the best you can. Sometimes you make the right decisions, and sometimes you make the wrong ones. But the moon is number two on our list of importance. Number one is weather. It trumps everything. If you've got a cold front and, uh, you know, let's say it's a 40-degree temperature differential, those deer are going to get up and move to a food source. If you've got a rising moon in the afternoon and evening, in the latter part of October, when they typically would be going to a green food source, and when the moon phase coincides with their normal feeding patterns, that is the optimum. So if you've got a rising moon and it would happen to be waxing full, you're going to see more deer up on their feet. And when I say a rising moon, I'm talking about one that's coming up. It's not too indifferent from the sun. It rises in the east and it sets in the west. And if you've got a moon that's coming up at, let's say, 3 or 3.30 in the afternoon or maybe even 2.30, and then 4.30, all of a sudden you start seeing it peaking up, up over the horizon, and by 5, 5.30 in the evening, it's already starting to park high in the sky there. Well, all of a sudden, those deer, it's almost like a, a biological clock. It just it kind of triggers something in their, physiologically, and it, it makes them get up and go to a food source. And conversely, so, so therefore, in the latter parts of October, you would love to have a rising moon that's waxing full. All right? That's the optimum. Okay. And it has to coincide with weather. In the early part of November, like the first 10 days of November, you would love to have a setting moon that's hanging a little bit late in the sky. And a lot of times you'll drive to work and you'll see the moon still up and you'll be like, Dove on, I wonder, you know, I, I didn't, never thought that it was still up. Or you right. just happen to be driving down the highway and you notice the moon. If that moon is setting to the west and it's, and it's still hanging high in the sky at about, I'm going to say, 8, 8.30, 9 a.m. in the morning, the first, ni- or the first 10 days of November, 
that, again, is the optimum. It causes them to be on their feet just a little bit later than normal. It's almost like a false alarm where typically they'd already be back in their bed, but because the moon is still up in the sky, they haven't made it back to the bed yet. Therefore, you want to be in that bedroom the first 10 days of November because they've been out all night. That moon has been high in the sky. They might have bedded up off of a, a food source very, very close, and then they're going to wait till all those does make it back into their bedroom, and then they're going to be checking door trails uh, and, and be the last one to bed. It's not uncommon to see a big bucket at 9.30, 10, 10.30, come lollygagging really, real slow through the woods checking doe trails that first 10 days of November. So, therefore, you want that moon still kind of hanging high in the sky. And, and stay in your stand until after it sets. Sometimes it's another 30 minutes, another hour until the moon disappears, and uh, they still will be up on their feet. So we really, really watch that moon face. And uh, if it coincides with their normal feeding pattern and their normal bedding pattern, you just can't beat it, along with weather. I, I love this topic. This has been kind of my little pet project this past off season. is just trying to better understand the moon and how that influences deer movement and stuff. So this is fascinating. I love this. Um, and we, I, I would tell you this. We live and die by it. Mark and I have been watching it for a long time, and we live and die by it. And you can almost set your watches. Uh, if you really watch that moon, you, you'll be surprised. Now, that's provided the weather is, is correct, and you've got cool temps and all that other stuff. But, uh, man, it's, it's amazing to watch that moon phase. But it has to coincide with the normal feed-to-bed pattern as well. Just because the moon is rising, like last year, the moon was so upside down it wasn't even funny. That's part of the reason that everybody had so much trouble. It was rising when it should have been setting, and it was setting when it should have been rising. And it just didn't coincide with their normal feed-to-bed pattern. And it was horrible, absolutely horrible. Uh, so no matter how good the weather was and, and all that other stuff, it was tough last year. And the EHD, the couple of EHD with a, with a wrong moon, it was really, really bad. Yeah, that was a perfect storm. Now, the, the natural follow-up question to this then is how, if at all, do you think the moon affects the timing of the rut? That's one of the popular theories out there. There's, there's a couple different camps on this, but where do you stand on if the moon or moon phase impacts timing of that rut? Well, I think it does, and I think it varies from state to state. And we see that because we hunt so many different states. But I think the firearm season when they come in and out in different states, I think it has somehow affected when that rut kicks in and when they do the majority of their breeding, when they lock down, and all of those other elements. I do also think that that moon phase still triggers it. Uh, and it's usually 7 to 10 days after that moon waxes full. That's whenever those does pop into estrus in a big way. And I'm saying the second moon, not the harvest moon. Uh, the harvest is in October. But the second moon there in November, when it pops, and it's usually seven to ten days after that is when those, is, or when it waxes full, it's usually seven to ten days after that that those does all pop, and that's when uh, everything gets locked down and you just don't see a shooter. Yep, yep, that is the, the infamous lockdown. Now, now, with that being said, let me back up just a little bit. Yeah. That, when that moon waxes full in October, you, even though it's the harvest moon, Typically, there's a few does that pop. There's always some early does, and those will be the first available estrus does. It is the single best time to kill a mature whitetail because those bigger, those bigger bucks always try to snip out that first available estrus doe. 
and every year in the end of October, there's always some giants killed because I believe there's a few does that pop early uh, in, in the rest of the herd and they pop in November, but there's always a few available estrus does there in October, and those first, those first few are when those big deer, those big adult uh, mature deer are out on the field looking, and they usually lock down with them for a few days. But it's a, it's a tremendous time to kill a big deer. Wow. So you said waxing full in October, late October, right? That's the key? Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah, because it's usually after, after it waxes full, it's about seven to ten days until they come into estrus. Now, those bucks are usually ready, but the does are not. So you'll see those bucks come onto a feed field, and they'll be nudging around and, you know, sparring a little bit, and uh, if a younger buck gets a little bit too close to some of the does, then obviously a fight ensues. But it's, it's always that the bucks are ready and the does are not. So that moon might be full, and all of a sudden you see all these giants stomping around on a field because they're ready to go, but yet she's not. So it's a little premature. Uh, but then seven to ten days after it waxes full and she goes into estrus, boom, all of a sudden they disappear. You don't see them again for another week or so because they get locked down and uh, they're with that doe. And, and, then, and then you have that dry spell even on the cameras. Your cameras just absolutely go dead. Wow. I got to figure out some way to get you and Mark to write a book about all these different moon, barometer, temperature, weather factors. This is fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, I love it. I'm just trying to keep up over here. I know. This is this is good. Um, I want to take a quick step back, though, Terry, back to early season real quick here. Uh, you know, we're still related to weather here, I guess, right? In the early season, as you mentioned, you're battling elements, whether it be bugs or in many cases, hot temperatures. And, uh, you know, I've certainly experienced those temperatures impacting my ability to stay scent free. So I'm curious to hear about how you handle scent control during those first few weeks of the season, given the you know average higher temperatures. Well, you know, we've, uh, we've been really, really consummate about practicing scent control for a long, long time. And there's only so many things that you can do, but we're going to do them to the nth degree or to the best of our ability to try and make sure that we're as scent-free as possible. And it's everything from our camera bags to, you know, to the boots we're wearing to your hat. All of those things, the gloves, your, your release aid, there's even your bow for that matter, you've got to be so cautious in making sure that they're sprayed down and making sure that they're wiped clean, making sure that there isn't any residual smell on uh, because the whitetail's nose is, is, is the key to survival. And we're, we're going to shower every day. Uh, during this, this early season, we may shower two or three times a day. Uh, our clothes, we're going to make sure that they're all in the, uh, the proper clothes wash. We use Under Armour spray to spray down each and every time. Before we head a field, we keep a spray bottle with us. As we're approaching the stand, we're going to spray down again. So we're very, very liberal in using that spray. And uh, we believe in it. We practice it. But we make sure that everything is scent free from, you know, using the, they make hair and, and body wash now and conditioners and all that stuff. And, and then all the clothes and detergents you can use that are all scent free. But we're, we're really, really uh, adamant about going through that regimen each and every day. And it's not about being lazy. I mean, you know, you can, you can walk out there and you can get dressed and you can go to the, the quick shop and get fuel, walk in and get a bottle of water, a candy bar or whatever. Well, you're so contaminated when you walk out of there, it's not even funny. So we make sure that all of our stuff stays scent-free, uh, and we just keep it outside or in a, in a container. 
and then we just absolutely really go to the nth degree to try and stay as scent free as possible. And it's a job. It's a, it's a regimen, it's, but it, it's part of, of what we do, and it's part of what a lot of guys do that practice it. And uh, the ones that practice it to the nth degree are usually the ones that are successful. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I don't think you can ever do too much to try to control that scent. It's just uh, so, so important. And related to that, wind direction and how you're hunting wind direction. I'm curious, you know, are you typically setting up so that the wind is in your favor, making sure obviously that you don't want your wind blowing towards where those deer are going to be? Or do you factor in how the deer is trying to use the wind to his favor as he approaches the food source or whatever? How do you balance that, if at all? I think we do a little bit of both, and I say that because when we're hunting over a food source, like the latter part of October, you know, we're always going to have the wind in our face. We just try to, try to you're going to give up a downwind side. That can't be helped, but we always try to sit with it. We walk in with the wind in our face, and we'll sit with the wind in our face. As the season progresses and you start to, you know, dive off into the timber, let's say the first 10 days of November, if you're going to try and get into the bedroom, uh, then we're a little bit different. I may sit on top of a high ridge and let that wind carry out over a really, really deep valley, and it may not, it may not hit the ground until the, the ridge on the other side. So we try to play those thermals, particularly we're talking about low pressure, high pressure a while ago. We're going to sit high in the morning when the thermals are going up and can carry your wind for a long ways or carry your scent for a long ways. And then in the evenings, we try to sit low. We try to sit you know, down in a creek bed or down in our, our bottom field, because the, as the temperatures fall in the evenings, the thermals are dropping. So we're not going to sit high on top of a ridge when our thermals are sliding down the hillside. That just doesn't work. So we're very cognizant about it, but uh, it's a matter, besides being scent free, your thermals are so important. And in addition to all that, we're going to use the Ozonics. We've got uh, a company called Ozonics that, that's got a, uh, a piece of equipment now that we use on a daily basis, use it regularly, and we've had extremely, extremely good results with these Ozonics. Uh, they, they, they create ozone, and uh, it'll, it kind of fools the whitetail's nose where you build this imaginary blanket, and the ozone layer just drops to the ground. And there, there is a situation where uh, it works a little bit better when you have uh, a constant wind speed and you have a high pressure and a little low, but we've just had tremendous luck with these ozonics, these ozone uh, generators. Yeah, Dan and I actually have uh, both been using ozonics for a while too, and it, uh, we're right there with you. We really, really do believe that it, it makes a big difference, that's for sure. I tell you, you have to be students of the game, and you got to learn. There's a learning curve uh, because I used it wrong the first few times that I put it out, and then I finally figured it out. We've had communications with the the manufacturers' reps and the owners and all that, and it's a constant, you know, a constant maintenance issue where you may be moving it if the wind direction is shifting a little bit. But once you find out the uh, predominant wind direction and you can get it set the way you want it, then we've had tremendous results. But there was a little bit of a learning curve, and, and we made all the wrong mistakes first. And, you know, I just hung it in a tree and let it go. Well, that's not the way you do it. When, when the wind shifts a little bit, sometimes you may have to move it just slightly. But uh, once you get it set right, man, we've had really, really good luck where a big buck will walk right through it and not pick anything, uh, not the wiser. Yeah, it's uh, it's incredible how, I mean, like anything, there's nothing that's foolproof. You're never going to be 100% invisible to a deer's nose, but every little bit that can help, in my opinion, is, is something I want to try. And so I really do feel like this is one of those pieces or tools in our toolbox that can help us. Um, so that's great. Well, we stated it early on, it's about stacking the odds, and that's really all you're doing. 
uh, is trying to put as many odds in your favor as you possibly can. And sometimes the more odds you put in your favor, the better your success is. Yeah, so true, so true. Now, we are coming up here pretty close on time, and I, I, I know you're busy checking trail cameras and you're out there on your farm, so I'm going to try to wrap things up here in a quick second, Terry, but I have one last question that I think Dan does as well. Uh, we actually interviewed your son, Matt, a few weeks ago here on the podcast, and during that interview, we asked him if he was placed on a random new property somewhere in the Midwest to hunt for seven days, who would he rather have guide him and help him out on that hunt? Would he rather have you or Mark? He chose Mark. So I'm curious, Terry, what, what do you think about that? How do you respond? <laughs> well, does that surprise me? Not really. Uh, I think Mark, Mark and I are both very, very analytical, but Mark is an aggressive, assertive individual. When it comes down to crunch time, buddy, he's gonna, if he's got to move a stand or if he's got to move a camera or, or if he's got to put panels on it in a tree, he's going to do whatever it takes to harvest a mature whitetail. He's just a, a consummate professional, he's, and he's good at what he does. When it comes to that chess match, he's as good as they get when it comes to hunting big whitetail. So I'd probably have to agree with Matt. I hate to, but I have to agree with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a pretty good sport. <laughs> you're just going to cut him out of the will, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you should have asked Matt how many deer he's killed on Mark's farm and how many deer he's shot on my farm. Ah, <laughs> in, the, in that case, then, would you take the cake, Terry? Uh, yeah. I've been spoon feeding for I don't know how long. <laughs> Mark spoon feeds Taylor and I spoon feed Matt. Yep, I guess that's that's how it's supposed to go with parents and their kids. That's pretty cool. <laughs> well, I, I like that one. Dan, do you want to uh, wrap things up here with a final question for Terry? Yeah, and this is kind of if if you were to provide a message to all of the listeners out there on any one tactic or maybe a piece of advice when hunting, you know, this podcast is in relation to early season or or hunting in general. Is there a tactic or a piece of advice that you would share? You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna take this this brief moment to say safety first. I I just don't think that it's it's preached enough. I don't think it's talked about enough. There's so many good harnesses out there, uh, so many manufacturers that build good harnesses, and there's still so many fatalities and so many uh, dis, you know uh, injuries, disabling injuries each and every year. Uh, that, that there's no reason for it. And we're fortunate in the fact that we're two guys hunting together. We always have a videographer with us. So if something would happen, we've got somebody there that can help us. But for the most vast majority of people are out there by themselves. Sometimes nobody knows where they're at, where they're hunting. Uh, they have to practice safety first. I, I just can't stress the importance of that enough. With that being said, the second thing I'd like to talk about is uh, game violations. There's far too many of those. The regulations are put into place for a reason. Uh, please stay in contact with your conservation agent, uh, whoever's in your area. Try and be their eyes and ears. Help them as much as we can. You know, every state is limited on the budget. We don't have near enough conservation officers out there to do the job. So many of them are, are trying to cover two and three big gigantic counties, and they just can't be everywhere at one time. So, you know, I, I would stress the, the factor of trying to help your agent, you know, and obey, obey the laws, obey the regulations, respect your neighbor, and respect the quarry that you seek. That's, uh, th those few little things are what we live and die by each and every day, and we, we are going to always you know, remain that way. And I hope that others will do the same. 
Yeah, that's good advice. Very good. Yeah, I think uh, some some really great reminders and very timely, given the fact that so many people are going to be hitting the woods here soon. So so thanks for that, Terry. And and that said, you know, I think this has been an awesome an awesome conversation. And you know, if our listeners want to learn more about what you're up to or the rest of the Drury Outdoors team, where can they go, Terry? Absolutely, log on to our website at DruryOutdoors.com. Uh, you can catch us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all those things. Matt's Matt's the one that handles a lot of that, and Taylor does as well. Those are our those are social media gurus. So uh, you may get in contact with one of them, but uh, you can always log on to DruryOutdoors.com. Excellent. We'll we will be sure to include those links in the blog uh, when we post this podcast. So, Terry, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time and chatting with us. I've I've learned a lot. I think our listeners have too, and, and it's been a lot of fun. So, thank you. You're quite welcome. Thank you, guys. Mark and I are students of the game, and we're going to continue that way. And whatever we learn, we're going to share with uh, whoever wants to listen. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. Good luck this. Good luck this season. And you guys as well. I hope you both kill a monster this year. (laughs) We hope so too. All right, Terry. Thanks again. Have a good one. Thank you, guys. Take care. Wow. I hope you were able to digest all that because Terry was just overflowing with great advice. I really enjoyed that chat. I hope you did too. That said, as always, if you did enjoy the show, we would really appreciate it if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes. It takes just a couple minutes, but it makes a big difference. So thank you in advance for that. And a huge thank you to the 55 people that have already left reviews. We really appreciate it. Speaking of thanks, we'd also like to thank our excellent partners who helped make this show possible. So big thanks to Sick of Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Carbon Express Arrows, Huntsoft, Lacrosse Boots, Big and J Long Range Attractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Also, be sure to visit wiredhunt.com slash episode 21 to view the show notes and links from today's episode. That said... Thanks again, Wired Hunt Nation, for being here with us today. And until next week, get to work preparing for opening day and stay wired to hunt. Hey, it's Turkey Week, March 11 through 17. Free shipping on all orders at First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store, too. You can pick up all the First Light gear that I wear in the turkey woods, plus so much more, including Meat Eater by Phelps Turkey Calls, which are straight-up killers, and Vortex Red Dots at 20% off. We're going to get you set up for the turkey season. So set up, in fact, that all you have to do is focus on that tom. So head on over to TheMeatEater.com, March 11 through 17, for Turkey Week.